Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Let, let me pray for us before we open up the word and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. God, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Holy Spirit, can you illuminate truth to us? Lord, can you open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts? Can you help us to look into the mirror and honestly ask, do we bear fruit? Lord, can you speak to each and every one of us? Lord, you know everything about us. You know who we are. You know what we're thinking, how we're feeling. You know whether we're coming or whether we're going. You know our struggles. You know our fears. You know our insecurities. There's not a thing you don't know about us. And so, Lord, I do pray through your word, can you minister to each and every one of them, including myself, can the word that we read, can it transform us as we look to you, as we trust you, that no matter what happens in this world and the chaos that we are surrounded with and the great rage that we're facing, that we know that our only hope in life and death, that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to you, that you are the vine and we are the branches. May we learn what it means to remain in you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John. Uh, we're going to be in John 15, verse 1, as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And again, what John is trying to show us, he's, he's revealing to us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he's been doing it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus is receiving glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose, the reason why he wrote this book is to invite us into belief so that we may have life in Jesus' name. Now, last week, Jesus continued to encourage the heart of the disciples. And he begins to describe the relationship that exists between them and the triune God. And really what we see in this relationship between the disciples, or basically the relationship between the believers and Christ, is that that relationship mirrors the relationship of the Father and the Son. Now, now as we get to John chapter 15, we really see a beautiful imagery of the vine and the branches. And really, this imagery speaks between the union between the believer and Christ, this union that was originated in Christ's initiative and sealed by his death on our behalf. And then we really see this union is completed by the believer's response of love and obedience. And this is the essence of Christianity, our union with Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And so let's look at this metaphor. Let's see this union that exists between us and Christ. Let's look at John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. 
Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. So, so let's stop here and unpack this. The first thing that Jesus declares is he declares to be the true vine. Not just any vine, but the true vine. And by him using the word true, again, is a statement of distinction and exclusivity, which means there might be other vines, but Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, the imagery of the vine has been used Throughout the Old Testament, even in our call to worship, we see the imagery of the vine in Isaiah 27. But we also see it in Isaiah chapter 5. And the passage in Isaiah chapter 5 names Israel as the vine and tells us the story of Israel through the image of the vine. God had chosen and intentionally planted this vine. He cultivated the vine, cared for the vine, and yet the vine yielded worthless grapes. And the vineyard would be removed because it failed to bear fruit. And then the rest of the picture of this imagery paints a grim picture of the vine that is destroyed. Because as this vine was planted, it was cultivated for, it was unable to produce any good fruit. And of consequences of it, the Lord would remove it and destroy it. And what does Jesus say? Jesus comes in and he presents himself as the vine. The true vine. In other words, what he is saying is, I am the vine that Israel could never be. And so if you're taking notes, basically the first thing we learn from this imagery, what Jesus teaches us about himself is that he, Jesus, is the true and better Israel. He is the vine chosen by the Father before the foundations of the world, intentionally planted in the midst of humanity in the fullness to redeem his own. He was sent to flourish and to redeem. He would do what Israel could never do. And what did Israel fail to do? They failed to produce fruit. And what has Jesus promised to do? He's the true vine that produces fruit. But as Jesus declares himself to be the true vine, now he turns to his disciples He turns to the believers, he he turns to us, and he speaks of his own as the branches. And the branches obtain their life from the vine, and the vine produces its fruit through the branches. And we see the heavenly father, he is the heavenly gardener, and what he does is twofold. The first thing he does is he prunes the, the branches that are producing fruit, he prunes them so that they may bear more fruit. And this might be a painful process, but yet it is a loving act so that the branches will produce more fruit. Very similar to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. All is this for our good that we may share in His holiness. But not only does the Heavenly Father prunes the branches that bear fruit so that they may bear more fruit, but the Heavenly Father also cuts off the branches that does not bear any fruit. He gets rid of the dead branches 
so that the living branches that are producing fruit may have more room to grow and produce more fruit. Now, as we look at this imagery, we get to verse 2. And some of you might be wondering in this metaphor, how can a branch who is connected to a healthy vine, the true vine, a.k.a. Jesus, how can this branch be unable to produce fruit? And we even see in verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. So who's he talking about? And obviously this verse has, 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 has occurred, has been a reason for much discussion and much debate. And so some people believe, well, Jesus is talking about the Jews, that the Jews, in a sense, were in him and they were unable to produce fruit, so the Father cut them off. But the problem with that is we don't really see the Jews trusting in Jesus, which means they weren't really in him. They didn't believe in him, so how can they be cut off if they weren't in him? Other people think that, that Jesus might be talking about apostate Christians, Christians who once believed and now no longer believe. But the problem with that is we get to, to passages like John chapter 6 and, and John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about all those the Father has given me, not one will I lose. So how can we belong to him and then be cut off from him? How do we justify these two verses. What does it really mean? I wish I had the answer, but I don't. But here's my best explanation. I think for starters, the first thing that we have to recognize is that this is a metaphor, okay? And metaphors, just like all metaphors, convey certain truths. And yet their metaphors are not exhaustive in conveying all truth. In other words, what I mean by that is we have to look at this metaphor and we have to ask ourselves, what main truth is this trying to teach us? Rather than pushing a metaphor too far to try to convey more truth that it wasn't really intentionally uh, meant to convey. And this is what we can do. We, we can't take a metaphor and push it too far and think it's communicating truth, but that's not really the point of the metaphor. Everybody's with me? Understand that? So when we look at this metaphor, the first question we got to ask ourselves is, okay, like, what's the main truth this metaphor is trying to communicate to us? And I think just by looking at this metaphor, the main purpose of this imagery, this metaphor, is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. In other words, if you're taking notes, the very main point that this metaphor is teaching us is that fruitfulness is an infallible mark of a true believer. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of a true believer. In other words, because Jesus is the true vine, compared to the vine of Israel that could not bear fruit, Jesus is the true vine. It's impossible to think that any branch that is attached to the true vine is unable to bear fruit. Because then Jesus, even his own credentials would be in question if there are branches that are attached to him unable to bear fruit. Because if a branch cannot bear fruit... Is it the branch's fault or the vine's fault? It's the vine's fault. 
But yet we know this metaphor is not teaching that because what is the metaphor teaching us? That he is the true vine and what is teaching us that if we are a branch attached to the true vine, we will bear fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of a true believer. So then again, I didn't really answer the question. Maybe an example of a branch that might have been in real contact with Jesus, but didn't bear any fruit and was cut off by the Father. Maybe an example in the scripture is Judas Iscariot. Or or, or maybe we we see that throughout the New Testament there were men and women that were maybe to some degree in contact with Jesus or to some degree in even contact with the church. Nevertheless, they failed to display the grace of perseverance, finally testified that the transforming life of Christ never pulsated within them. John even talks about in 1 John, they went out from among us, which means they never really belong to us and so the main truth that this metaphor that jesus is teaching us is that fruitfulness is an infallible mark of a true believer but then look what else he says in verse four he says remain in me and i in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine neither can you unless you remain in me In other words, no branch has life in itself. Every branch is utterly dependent for life and fruitfulness on the vine to which it's attached. And what what we see is we see the living branch is thus truly in the vine and the life of the vine is truly in the branch. And then Jesus kind of takes a step away from the imagery. And the second part of verse 4, he directly addresses disciples and he says, Neither can you unless you remain in me. So the second truth that this main, second main truth that the imagery is teaching us if you're taking notes is that continuous Dependence, constant reliance, persistent spiritual absorbing of Christ's life is necessary or even as, as essential for spiritual fruitfulness. In other words, just like it's impossible for a, brain, for a Christian unable to bear fruit, we must constantly be dependent, reliant spiritually absorbing Christ's life so that we can bear fruit. Because apart from Christ, we can't do anything. We don't have life in ourselves. And if we don't have life in ourselves, we can't produce any fruit. And just like a branch is intimately connected to a vine, every believer is intimately connected to Christ. And in a sense, used to Christ we are sustained by this connection and that's what it means to be united with Christ so much so that life and fruitfulness comes from our union with Christ because we are in Christ and Christ is in us and Jesus reiterates the same truth look at verse 5 again he says I am the vine you are the branches The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burnt. 
And again, he, he reiterates the same truth. And there's two options. You either remain in the vine and you bear fruit or you detach yourself from the vine and you are thrown into the fire. Or another way of looking at it, you either believe in Christ and you're united with Christ and you produce fruit, or you do not believe in Christ, you're not united to Christ, and there's only condemnation. There's no third option. You're either bearing fruit or you're not. You're either attached to Him, united to Him, or you're not. And a culture that loves third options. We, like, we, don't, we, we agree with yes and no, but we want also a maybe. A true or false or, well, we'll see. But that's not what the Bible teaches. This is not what Jesus teaches. You're either in Him or outside of Him. You're either attached to Him, remain in Him, or detached from Him. So in this metaphor, we see these two truths being communicated for us to remain in Him. And so then the question is, okay, I get it. What does it mean to remain in Him? How do we remain in Him? Well, he, he tells us, look, look at verse 7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And I think in, in this text, the first thing we see to remain in Jesus, if you're taking notes, means to remain in his word. By remaining in Jesus, we're remaining in his word. Uh, if you notice, the very, word, the very words of Jesus that makes us clean. Look at verse 3. He, he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. The very word of Jesus cleanses us, and that is the very word we remain in. So what does it mean to remain in his word? It means that his word must be lodged in our hearts and in our minds that conforms us to Christ. And this lodging of the word that conforms us to Christ plays itself out in prayer where true obedience of, of a disciple continues an effective prayer where we are being conformed by his word and in effective prayer we're praying in his name asking, for the Lord to help us to conform ourselves to His will so that we may bear fruit for His glory. Really what we see in verse 7 and verse 8 is, is uh, even in my walk with the Lord, what I'm starting to learn is that you can't separate the word from prayer. Like, in other words, what I mean by that is you can't have a vibrant word life, that's probably not a, a good phrase, and a vibrant, without a vibrant prayer life. And you can't have a vibrant prayer life without a vibrant word life. The two are connected. So if you're saying, I am praying faithfully, but I'm not really in the word, I'm asking you, how can you pray faithfully? Because what is prayer? Prayer is not just simply asking, Lord, give me things, but prayer is us conforming ourselves to the will of God according to the word of God. And so as we're reading the Word and we're conformed by the Word of God that leads us into effectual prayer where we're praying in His name saying, help me to conform to your will that is revealed in your Word. 
So Jesus says that if you, by remaining in me, you're remaining in my word, and then you're praying, and whatever you're praying in, in my name, I'm going to give you, because what you're doing is you're aligning yourself up to my will, and I'm going to grant that, and by granting that, the Father is being glorified. In other words, Carson says this, He says, since the fruit of believers is because of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross and and the life the believer has in Christ, in Christ's response to the prayer of his disciples, it follows that the believer's fruitfulness bring glory to the Father through the Son. So really what he is saying is that The fruitfulness of the believer is part and parcel the way the Son glorifies the Father. Like, just think about that profound idea here. Jesus has already laid the groundwork, and he's kind of intermingling his relationship with us and his relationship with the Father. And now he continues this idea, because how is the Father glorified through our fruit? That is how the Son glorifies the Father, through the fruit that we produce. And how do we produce the fruit? Because we are attached to Him. And this is what He is showing in our union with Christ. Jesus continues to explain what it means to remain in Him. So we remain in Him by remaining in His Word. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. In other words, not only do we remain in Jesus by remaining in his word, but if you're taking notes, we remain in Jesus, which means we remain in his love. We remain in his love. Obviously, the imagery between the vine and the branches has really limitations because it really doesn't depict the unfathomable love and the intimacy that exists between Jesus and his disciples. But what I don't want us to do is just kind of skip over. Like, think about this verse here. Verse 9 says this. Just think about this truth. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Just think about this for a moment. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me. In other words, what he means by that, as the Father's complete and perfect love for the Son, The Son in His complete, perfect love for for us. And eventually He will display that love by laying down His life. The love that the Son has for the disciples is mirrored by the love the Father has for the Son. Like, just think about that profound truth again. How does Jesus love you the way the Father loves him? Jesus so perfectly and completely loves you that he compares his love for you to that of the Father that has for him. 
what would the father never do to the son? Think about it. If the father so completely and perfectly loved the son, the father will never disown the son, never abandon the son. His love for the son is perfect and complete. So the love the son has for you is perfect and complete. And just like that love that the father has with the son mirrors that love the son has for you, how does the son show that he loves the father? By doing what? By obeying the father. Jesus is so loved by the father that Jesus completely obeys the father. He only says and does what the father tells him to do. And because Jesus so completely and perfectly loves us, our response to that complete, perfect love is what? Obedience, where we obey him. And so if we are recipients of Jesus' perfect and complete love that is compared to Jesus being the recipient of the Father's perfect and complete love, we remain in his love in the same way the Son remains in the Father's love, and that is through obedience. And so we remain in his love by obedience. We can even say this if you're taking notes. We remain in his word, and we remain in his love by obedience obeying him but what we have to understand is obedience is the condition of continually remaining in his love but it's also important for us to understand that our love for jesus is the wellspring of our obedience to him our obedience is the demonstration of the reality of that we love not that we first loved him but that he first loved us. So Jesus shows the disciples this union and the truth that he is conveying to them. He says that you have to bear fruit if you are a part of me, if you're united to me. And you have to be dependent, reliant, constantly absorbing life in me so that you can continue to bear fruit. But you've got to remain in me. And the way you remain in me is by remaining in my word, remaining in my love. And you do all of that through walking in obedience because I perfectly and completely love you. Now, when we think about it, many of us imagine and says obedience to Christ is hard. Even obedience to Christ can be a burden. Why? Because it requires us to humble ourselves. It requires us to sacrifice, self-surrender, and service. But what Jesus teaches us, look, at, look he, he gives us the results of what it means to remain in his love through obedience. Not only is the Father glorified, but look at verse 11. Look at the results when we walk in obedience, remain in his love. He says in verse 11, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. In other words, Jesus insists that his own obedience to the Father is the ground of his joy. And what he promises us, that those who obey him will share in that same joy. For many of us, we think obedience is a burden. 
But what Jesus is teaching us, no, obedience is a source of great joy because you will have my joy and my joy will be in you. Because we are united to Christ. Just as, as, as the Son finds it joyful to obey to the Father, a great delight. So we, in our obedience, find great delight and joy in obeying Him. And as Jesus commanded his disciples to remain in him by remaining in his word and in his love through obedience, he reminds them of the ultimate command. Look at verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. And since we've already talked about this command, let's talk about how Christ loved them. Jesus says, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. And how did Christ love them? How does Christ love us? By laying down his life for us. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Christ, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And even though there is a sense in which Jesus gives his life to the world, more specifically, who does he give his life to? What does the text say? He gives his life to his friends. And then he turns around. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, obedience is not what makes them friends, but rather obedience is what characterizes them as friends. But what we have to understand is this this friendship is not reciprocal. Because these disciples can't turn around and say, okay, Jesus, if we obey, you call us friends. And if you obey us, we will call you friends. That's, That's not what's going on. Uh, We have to understand that that even in the Old Testament, God called Abraham and Moses friends, but God was never called their friend. Nowhere in Scripture was Jesus or God ever referred to as friends of anyone. Maybe, if you want to get really technical, maybe Jesus was known as the friends of sinners and tax collectors, but who gave them that title? The Pharisees, they also called him prince of demons, which shows us they just had a wrong view of Jesus. But what's happening in this friendship, it's not mutual reciprocal friendship, because if that's the case, then, it's imp- then God would be demeaned. But rather, what he is saying is, you are my friends if you obey me. And what is that friendship? What makes them friends? Because he is revealing to them the plan. The reason why Abraham and Moses was called friends of God is because of extraordinary revelation. The difference between a servant and a friend, and this is what Jesus says, a servant just simply obeys. The master tells him what to do, and he just says, yes, boss. But a friend knows the heart of the master, the reason behind the command, understands what the master wants and where the master is going. And a friend can obey because he has received full understanding and privilege of the master's heart. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples. I've made known to you the Father's plan. I'm revealing all of this to you because you 
or friends. And then as the disciples in verse 16, as the disciples are thinking, man, look at this privileged position we find ourselves, that he is the true vine that Israel could never be, and we will be bearing fruit because we are a part of him and attached to him, and we're going to be dependent on him. And now Jesus calls us friends, just like God called Abraham Moses friends. We are special people, and Jesus reminds them in verse 16, and then we're wrapping it up. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Really what Jesus is saying is, don't think of yourself as being special because you thought you chose me. The reality is, I chose you. But why did he choose them? To do what? To bear fruit. One of the things I love in verse 16 is we have a tendency to take God's election and think it contradicts evangelism. So people who believe in God's election fails to evangelize. But what does the text say in verse 16? Look at, it, look at this. I have chosen you and appointed you to do what? To go and produce fruit. In other words, what we have to understand, one of the purpose of God's election is that those who've been so blessed with revelation and understanding should do what? Should go and proclaim that to others. That is the fruit that is lasting. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others may come in. And Jesus continues again with the same truth that whatever you ask in my Father's name, I will give you. That as you're reminded of your election, it humbles you and you're proclaiming my truth to others and you're asking on my behalf and my name in the, to the Father, I will give to you. So, so let, let, let's wrap it up here. I know this is a, a very difficult text for us, but but, but what's some application? What can we take from this other than some of the truths we already talked about? Where we learned that fruitfulness is an infallible mark of a true Christian. That a true Christian must constantly be dependent, reliant, spiritually absorbing of Christ's life. It's necessary to produce fruit because without Christ, we cannot produce fruit. We will wither and die for life and fruitfulness only can come from Christ. And the command for us is to remain in him, remain in his word, remain in his love, and we do this by obeying him. And as we're obeying him, we have the joy of the Lord in us. We see the Lord being glorified. But really, big picture, some application, what we see in this metaphor is really this metaphor underscores that salvation from beginning to end is all of God's grace. Think about this. The branches will not even exist without the vine. The vine is the life source of the branch. It enables the branch to grow. It enables the branch to produce fruit. 
And without the vine, we're dead, we're fruitless, we're cut up, thrown into the fire, burnt up. What this should do for us as believers, as Christians, it should humble us believing like, oh, what a grace the Lord has given to me in saving me and preserving me. What a wonderful privilege I have. Let me remain in him and trust in him and look to him. And I think the second truth it teaches us as it describes our union with Christ. He is in us. We are in him. Like really this is the essence of Christianity. We cannot obey, we cannot believe, we cannot trust, we cannot walk in obedience without our union with Christ. And this is why Paul even says in Romans 6, we've died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. When God sees us, he sees Christ in us. It is his record, his righteousness, that counts, that God looks at, and that God accepts. And so, so many times, especially in, in our culture in the 21st century, like we're fixed a kind of people. So, so many times, like, like we want answers to, to our problems, we want solutions. And what we have to understand, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, in a sense, says, yeah, you need to do X, Y, and Z. But if you've noticed throughout the text, it says, because you are in Christ, you can do these things. In other words, when we do, when we pray, when we read, when we evangelize, when we persevere, it's only because of our union with Christ that we can do all of these things. And that's even in the metaphor. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And so when we struggle, in a sense, to do some of these things, we feel like it's a lack of self-discipline or it's a lack of this. We need to get back to the union with Christ. We need to get back and remind it that I am in Christ, that Christ is in me. It is his record that stands for me. It is his strength. It is his joy. Just as he is obeying the Father, so I can obey him. Just as the Father loves him, so so the Son loves me. And we need to constantly go back to us being united in Christ and this is where the phrase came in Christ not I but Christ in me and without that we will only find a life of frustration and failure so what I want to encourage you is as you like as you read the word through the week notice the phrases in in Christ because of Christ and what you will see is it's throughout Scripture showing us that on our own we can't do a single thing. But praise the Lord that we are united with Him. And if we're united with Him, that means we can never be separated from Him. And this, can, this is the assurance of our salvation. How do I know that I'll be persevered to the end? Oh, because I'm good. No, because I am in him. Christ is in me, and I am in Christ. I am united to him. When I feel like I might be forsaking the faith, when I feel like I might be wandering into sin, 
I have to be reminded again, no, I do not have to walk in that sin. Why? Because I am in Christ. Christ is in me. He has paid the price for me. He has set me free from the guilt of it. May, me, may I continue to walk in unison with him, in obedience to him as I remain in his word and in his love. Let me pray for us and then we get to sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross. Well, Jesus, I am so grateful that you are our representative, that you have exchanged your righteousness for our unrighteousness. And we can stand in before the Father because of what you have done. And Lord, I pray that in our struggles of life, in the temptations that we might face, in our doubts and in our fears, Lord, may we be reminded of this wonderful truth that we are the branches, you are the vine, that we are united to you. Help us to remain in your word. Help us to remain in your love by walking in joyful obedience. As we continue to pray, I just want you to take a moment and just meditate, reflect on this union with Christ that you have. Like, like think about some of the, the, the sin that you're wrestling with, some of the sin that you might feel defeated, maybe a situation that you're overwhelmed with. Maybe you're dealing with failures and you're thinking just, I, I just need to do better. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about you being united with Christ. Christ being the life source, the source of fruit in your life. You can overcome, why? Because Christ has overcome. And you are united to Christ. So, so the sin that you're struggling with, you can have victory over it. Why? Because Christ has victory over it. The challenge or the obstacle that you're facing, you can defeat. Why? Because Christ has defeated it. And so maybe ask the Lord to help you to, to no longer look to yourself, but to look to Christ. And to understand this truth that your union with Christ. You are united with him. And that he loves you and that he's committed to you, that his spirit lives inside of you, that he has fused himself to you. And then ask the Lord to help you walk in victory, clinging to this truth of you being in Christ. As we get ready to sit at the table, the table again reminds us of our union with Christ. Because it's his righteousness exchanged for our unrighteousness. His obedience for our disobedience. 
and we get to sit at the table because of what Christ has done for us. And when God sees us, he doesn't look at us in all of our imperfection and all of our flaws and all of our sin, but he sees us as perfect because what he sees is Christ in us. And this table reminds us of that reality, that God has accepted us because of Christ. And what a wonderful privilege it is, what a wonderful truth in our struggle in life to cling to. And so as we go ahead and distribute these elements, what, what I really want you to do is to think about that union, Christ being your representative, his obedience, his righteousness, the wonderful privilege you get to enjoy because of what he has done. And what do we do? Just like we receive the cup and the bread, we receive Christ and we feast on Christ. In a sense, what it, what it does is it reminds us of our constant dependence, reliance, spiritual absorbing of his life so that we bear fruit. We're reminded to walk in his word and in his love and remain in him. I don't know about you, but as I read John 15 verse 9, I'm just so gripped by this verse. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in me. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And how did he display his perfect, complete love for us? By laying down his life for us. By making himself known to us. By infusing himself to us. What a wonderful privilege. What a great joy. May we feast on his body that was given to us. May we feast on his blood that was shed for us. And may we walk in obedience just as the Son obeys the Father. Lord, I, I thank you. Lord, can you help us to obey? Lord, there are some areas in our lives that maybe we are struggling to obey you, areas that we might not be trusting you in. Can you help us to surrender those areas of our lives? Can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to be overwhelmed by your love for us? Your complete and perfect love. And Lord, can you help us to remain in your love and in your word as we walk in obedience? Lord, you are such a good, faithful Savior. And we thank you for everything. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Savior?